Okay, this morning I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And hopefully you had a good holiday and now you're all done with the holiday. And uh, I know even this holiday I've been sick uh, the last week or more. And uh, I'm a little bit under the weather this morning, so just bear with me today. And we have the Lord's table, so be thinking about that as we uh, are preparing ourselves for it. But uh, I think on the first Sunday of the new year, we probably should run a, a couple laps to get all the holiday out of us and be refreshed to come and hear the word, right? Because it's always like a kind of a down time. You know, everybody's tired and some people have been sick and you ate a lot of food. A lot of cookies and desserts and all that kind of stuff. But hey, reality is set in again, and uh, I kind of liked the regular routine. So let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for bringing us together. For another Lord's Day, another year, you grant it to us, Lord. And it's a great privilege uh, to be able to have another, some more time. I just pray, Lord, the time that you allow us to have, we would not waste it. But we would be very diligent to have a plan on who we're going to listen to this year. I pray, Lord, that your voice would always be louder than any other voice vying for our attention. And I pray, Lord Jesus, the word of God would just saturate our soul, saturate our mind, that when we think, we would be thinking biblically, that we would be thinking your thoughts that you would be transforming our mind to the point where when we are making our decisions, it's based on the will of God first, and not on our flesh, and not on the world's pressure on our life, and not on Satan's manipulation and deception. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we get to the Word of God to be able to nail down and look at the things that are important to you and that would be also important to us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm looking at this morning at uh, the marks of an ambassador for Christ. I'm going to look for only at the first one today because we do have the Lord's table. So in light of this new year, I really want to challenge all who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, whether you have been a Christian for a short period of time or whether you have been in the faith for some time. Consider why did the Lord not take you home immediately when you were converted to Christ? Why did he leave you here? Why did the Lord allow you and me to be born during this time in history? Why did he allow you to be raised in a particular cultural setting? Why are you here for such a time as this. Well, the passage before us really gives us somewhat of an answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, notice what it says in verse 20. It tells us in verse number 20, very clearly, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what we are. Paul is not just talking about himself and the Corinthians, he's talking about all of us who will hear this. That if we look at that passage, I want you to get in your mind and wrap your mind around the understanding of what an ambassador for Christ 
actually is so you can live out your ambassadorship with confidence. An ambassador can be defined, according to D.A. Carson, as a government representative commissioned to serve in a foreign country for the purpose of accurately communicating the positions and policies of the government he or she represents so that the people to whom he or she speaks will be brought into and kept in a good relationship with the government of the country he or she serves. In other words, while we are in this earthly tent, and that's really what the beginning of this passage is all about, that God kind of left us here, and he says, if you go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, we know that if, we, if, if the earthly tent, that's our body, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have put it on, will not be found naked, and then, of course, it goes on to say that we, again, live by faith and not by sight. In verse 6, it says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So we are, it's talking about the, the temporal and the eternal, but in the temporal realm, while we're still here in our bodies on this earth, God has something for us to do. Right? He doesn't want us to be spinning our wheels and twiddling our thumbs. He wants us to do something very uh, directly. He wants us to do it. So when ambassadors, ambassadors do not come with their own agenda. They do not come on their own authority. Ambassadors actually come on the agenda of another and the authority of another. In other words, we Christians... As aliens in this world have been called by Christ to bring the word of God, the gospel, to a world, a world steeped in spiritual darkness, and in particular, to our own unique post-postmodern culture, with our culture's unique characteristics and needs. What they need, and they don't know they need it, more than anything else, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Christ needs is ambassadors to get that gospel to everybody we know. So that's what an ambassador is. So we are actually aliens on this earth, not with our own message, but a message that comes from heaven, not on our own authority, but on the authority that comes from God. And we are to bring that message without messing it up to a culture who is of course, steeped in darkness. And so the one and only institution who has been mandated by God to bring his message to the world is the true church. And I always want to try to add that in there, the true church, because there's many churches, but not many are true to what God's called them to do. And that is because in the church there are found the followers of Jesus Christ who have been entrusted with the message of salvation, by grace alone, through Christ alone. 
Thessalonians 2.4 tells us that we have been entrusted with the gospel. It's been given to us, and that's the trust that God's given to us. So today, I want you to take note of, there's going to be four unique marks of an ambassador for Christ, but today I'm going to be just looking at one of them uh, for the sake of time. And I want you to kind of take each one of these marks and evaluate yourself with them, then make necessary adjustments in order to live out your ambassadorship with confidence and with holy zeal, because that is what you are if you are a true believer. You are an ambassador on this earth for Christ. You don't belong here. You belong in heaven. But until you get there, God has work for you to do. So today, we'll consider the first mark of an ambassador for Christ. And the first mark of an ambassador for Christ is their disposition, who they are, because who they are is going to be very significant in bringing a message to a culture who doesn't believe what you have to tell them. So if you look at verse 11 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, the first thing under that disposition is a consistent integrity. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, let me just stop there. Now, we know what it is to fear the Lord already from this context, and I'm going to read it to you in a second, that we will give an account for our life, how we lived our life for Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, what it says. It says, therefore, we also have our as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing with the Lord, to be pleasing to him. And then it says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right, whether good or evil. In other words, listen, while you're here in this body, God has something for you to do. Do, do it as pleasing to the Lord. All right, be an ambassador as pleasing to the Lord. So it is the evaluation of Christ that matters, not anybody else. It is the realization that the work of, of a Christian will be tested by God. And so, therefore, we need to be careful how we build and how we live our life. God gives us that responsibility. He does have confidence in us that we will take care of the unfinished work of Christ on this earth. So the Apostle Paul knew that everything will be brought to light by the Lord Jesus Christ, even the very secrets and intents of the heart. So we have to mark right at the beginning that as well as the Apostle Paul, that we sh should endeavor never to want to live a double life. That would be unthinkable to Paul. It should be unthinkable to us. We should be living a life that God wants us to live. And part of that living that life is to know that we are people of integrity. We're not perfect people, but we are people of an integrity. Now, the phrase in verse 11, we persuade men, does not necessarily mean what you may think it means. 
Some have uh, given various interpretations of this phrase. Some say that we, we are to per- persuade people to fear the Lord. We are to persuade people of the wrath to come, uh, to persuade people to recognize the virtues of Christ, to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. But the only one that really actually fits the context is that Paul needs to persuade people of his own integrity because the false teachers were saying all kinds of false things about who he was, about what he was about, about his message. And so he was telling the Corinthian church in in 2 Corinthians, now some of these things should be clear to you because we just got done doing 2 Corinthians in home groups, uh, that the false teachers were very active in tearing down what Paul was establishing. And one of the things they wanted to tear down was his own integrity. And so Paul wrote to protect his integrity before false accusers who were trying to destroy his reputation. That would not be healthy for the church, nor would it advance the preaching of the gospel. Faithful building includes the ministry, a ministry of integrity. Because one day you and I will stand before God who has sent us to carry the message of the gospel of peace to a world of rebels, and we will give an account for that. So that means we can't be silent. An ambassador is not somebody who is silent, but an ambassador is someone who does understand what they believe so they can tell it to others. They understand what has happened to them so they can tell it to others. Now, if you look at the second part of verse number 11, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So you see here in this passage, God already knew Paul's heart and his hope and his particular hope, Paul's hope, was that the Corinthians would also be convinced in their conscience concerning his integrity and not listen to the false teachers, the false accusers, and the ones who were bringing another message and another gospel. For your information, the word integrity is actually a Latin word that bears the meaning to mean entire or a quality of being whole without division, or undivided. That means that an ambassador for Christ is not to be hypocritical or duplistic or double-minded. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But instead, an ambassador is to be honest and sincere, genuine and incorruptible in their disposition in their very character. Now, just take your Bibles real quick and turn over to Psalm chapter 15, and then we'll go right back to 2 Corinthians. Because in Psalm uh, 15, at least in the New American Standard Bible, uh, it tells us of actually somebody who has integrity acts a certain way. And look what it says in Acts, uh, in, excuse me, Acts, uh, Psalm 15, verse 1. It, said, it says this, O Lord... Who may abide in your tent? A question. Who may dwell on your holy hill? Notice what it says in verse 2 of Psalm 15. 
He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And look, then look at verse 3. This is what he doesn't do. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. See, that is a person. That is a person worth listening to. See, a person of integrity is a person, whether you disagree with them or not, they are worth listening to because they have integrity in their character. All right? They are the real deal. You don't have to unpeel all kinds of layers to figure out who they are. They are who they are as soon as you meet them. All right? To me, it's very exhausting to meet people that you don't never get to know. They just know how to keep an arm's distance from you. And you just never know what they're thinking, never know what they really believe, never, never know anything about them, because that's the way they want it, all right? But no, a Christian ought to be an open book. You have to be somebody who, who can be re read easily, because you kind of wear it on your sleeve. You wear it on your forehead. You have integrity, right? And believe me, if you're going to give the gospel to anybody, if you're going to convince anybody that you're a Christian, they have, they have to see it in your life, all right? Integrity is a part of it. A second thing, back to 2 Corinthians from the Psalms there, a second thing characteristic of an ambassador's disposition is that of genuine humility. Now, look what it says in verse 12 and 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, in appearances and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are sound of mind, it is for you. Now, he is not trying here, Paul, to build his own power base or to toot his own horn or to advance his own self-agenda. He had no self-interest at all. He want, wanted the Corinthians to have confidence in his integrity so that they would know how to answer the hypocrites, how to answer the false teachers. So in verse 12, he refers to the false critics in this way. Notice what he says, those who take pride in appearances. And this is always the case with people who bring a false message. It's all about appearances. It's merely a showmanship type of deal. That's what they boast in. They boast in the externals of ministry, buildings and programs and methods and numbers, not in the quality of the heart of the people, that these people are truly born-again believers and God is transforming them from the outside, from the inside out, and they're genuine. See, it doesn't matter if you have any of the other stuff. That's what, what matters more, most. So there, there must be genuine humility. So armed with a proper view of the Apostle Paul, his supporters would figure out that it was the hypocrites who lacked integrity, because their concern and their focus was outward religious appearances and not the true condition of the heart before a watching God and a watching 
church and a watching world. So genuine humility has a concern for others, a genuine concern for others, that their spiritual condition, where they're going to go one day when they die and they leave their body, where are they going to end up? See, they don't, have a, they don't even have that concern for themselves. They're not even thinking about it sometimes. And if they do, it's in a passing moment because they don't want to think that too much on that deal, right? Uh, people don't like deal, thinking about death, and I can understand that. But a Christian ought to. I have genuine concern that someone who doesn't know Christ, well, I know where they're going, and I don't, I don't like that. And because, I, because of that, it drives you to want to tell them, to pray for them, to bring them before the Lord on a regular basis. And it will take humility to represent Christ in an alien culture because people will say all kinds of evil against Christians, and it's very hard, but it's very hard to argue against the genuine heart of integrity and humility. Very hard to do that. Even for people who hate you, it's hard to do. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.13, it says for... If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are sound of mind, it is for you. Meaning, to the onlookers, an ambassador may be considered as a crazy fanatic, a madman. Whether people thought him imbalanced mentally or sound in mind, it did not matter to Paul. What matters and what should matter to us is the truth in which we proclaim and our own disposition and character that we are developing by the Spirit of God. A third characteristic of an ambassador's disposition is found in verse 14. But there's a question that I I want to bring uh, to you. And so what what is the mark that will cause genuine ambassadors to act so differently from other people? What's the, the main thing that will cause us to act so differently than from any other people? Well, there's only one answer to that. In verse number 14, here it is. It's a deep thankfulness for Christ's love. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, that means that Christ's love for Paul had overcome him. And you know what? I believe that this is one of the key to the Christian life, is the love of Christ. Paul knew that the love of Christ, Paul, Paul and we should also know that the, the, the love that Christ has for us, because it was demonstrated to us and to him in a most costly way. And, of course, the way of death, he knew, and we should know, that Christ loved him savingly, and he did not deserve it, and we do not deserve it. That is on his mind every minute of every day. Christ loves me. That motivates me. It controls me. It's the fire in my soul. Why me? I don't know. Why you? I don't know. 
don't seem too lovely, loving to me. But God loved us, not because of us, but because of him he loved us. See, that, the term here, controls, actually, A.T. Robertson, in his uh, old, he brings this up as an old common verb, it actually means to be, to hold together. So Paul, Paul's conception of Christ's love for him holds him together to his task and it doesn't matter what people think of him it doesn't matter what people say about him overtaken by Christ's love compelled him to serve wholeheartedly beyond what is ordinary no matter what curveballs are thrown into the mix nothing can keep an ambassador from their task and what is this very thing? It is the love of Christ that controls and, and holds us together. Others must hear about this love. So nothing can keep us from taking the message of the gospel to all men everywhere. It is a love that has the power to make someone alive, to change them. Nothing else could do, can do it like this gospel of love. So Christ's love holds believers to the task and puts pressure in their life, which produces results. Everything is changed and different because Christ loved me and loved you savingly. Christ died in the place of all who put their faith in him. If you notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says this, after he says, for the love of Christ controls us, he says this, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, this is the great proof of his love. His death in our stead. But I, I do want to remind you about the two words all there. Calvin had said that, and I agree, that all equals all kinds of classes of people. All rich or poor, high or low. He's rejecting no class of people. Taking some from each class, but the all does not mean every individual. Right, that has to be clear. Actually, it comes out, again, in him kind of expanding on what it means, what the love of Christ, where the love of Christ actually moves believers to, how, to, to the way they are living their life. Also, Christ's death fully satisfied God's justice and propitiated his wrath for all those who put their faith in him. So the, the cross was a terrifying, bloody execution that Jesus' crucifixion shows us that something had gone terribly wrong with the human race. But it also shows us that there is a solution. The Bible tells us about what God has done in order to reconcile sinners to himself. Friends do not need to reconcile friends, right? Friends do not need to rec be reconciled, but enemies need to be reconciled. In other words, we were enemies of God. Whether you 
thought yourself one or not, the Bible says you were enemies of God. In your, in your sin and in your rebellion against God and your disobedience, you were a rebel and an enemy against God. So it was God who sent Christ. It was God himself who took the initiative. The Lord responded to sinful humanity who had nothing to offer him by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin for we read in the Gospels that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve <coughs> and to give his life a ransom for many. So his sacrifice was meant to propitiate God, to satisfy God. And the result of that was that Jesus died to wipe out the guilt of sin. That's the word expiation, to wipe it out, to remove it, to wash it away. So that this expiation was effected by the vicarious punishment of a victim. In the Old Testament, it gives us the picture of substitution, that a victim was taken, an animal was substituted for the sinner, and this animal then became the one who bore the punishment of the sin. So Old Testament sacrifices show that it is because it is because the animal was substituted for the offender. In other words, the person who was the animal was the innocent and the one who actually was uh, committed the sin was their guilt was placed on the animal. His sin was dealt with in the animal so that his guilt was wiped out. That was the picture in the Old Testament. So that the effect of such a sacrifice was the pardon of the offender and his restoration to communion with God. Now, I say that for this reason, and, and he brings it out in our passage uh, because he says very clearly that Christ died for all classes of people. So that, in other words, this is how a Christian understands the love of God. It's not this mushy definition of love and this feeling and the oozy thing. No, it's actual doctrinal truth that impresses upon our heart and mind that Christ did this for you. He became your substitute so you can have your sins wiped away and made clean forever. That's where the motivation comes. That's how a Christian thinks. That's why their disposition is so different than everybody else's. In other words, sin was dealt with in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and the result of this is the sin of believers are washed away. The believer is reconciled to God. They were once enemies of God, but now they are reconciled to God. And sinners are forgiven, and the broken relationship between sinner and a holy God is now changed. See, that's how we understand the love of God. Now, the love of Christ, from that point, moves a believer in their disposition into four new places. Here's the first one. 
Notice in verse number 15. Here's the first one. That the love of Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer live for themselves. Notice what it says. So, brethren, before we came to know Christ, all we knew was to live for ourselves, to live selfishly. That's all we knew. But notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he died for all so that they who live, all right, in other words, what? We're left here in our bodies. How are we supposed to live? Notice. Who live might no longer live for themselves. So the love of God, this is how it's manifested in our life. I no longer live for myself. I have somebody else to live for, someone who is worthy to live for. Of course, that's what it says. It says, to live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There it is. In Christ, believers experience not only death to sin, but also resurrection to righteousness. But now there is a change. We came to be constrained by his love. And now to live for the one who died for us in our place and rose to give real life to us, our whole life, interest should be centered on Christ and not centered on ourselves. That means that believers are spiritually alive to serve him gladly. The first time when we come believers, we actually can serve God without all the obstacles. I know who I'm serving. There's no uh, confusion in my mind about that. The implication of the cross puts an end to a life of selfishness. That's why Paul, what does Paul say in Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew his life meant only to live for Christ. That's the only life worth living. You will not regret it if you live for Christ. So God left us here not for the purpose of living for ourselves, but to live for the one whom we now love, Jesus Christ. In other words, the love of Christ will bring us to the death of self. That's the first place it brings us. Second place it brings us, look at verse number 16. The love of Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer look at people in a fleshly way. Notice what it says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Let me just stop there. People are, are not looked at anymore as Jew or Gentile, as bond or free, as rich or poor, as pagan or barbarian, nor by their skin color, red or yellow or brown or black or white. They are looked at as those who are lost in darkness, in the bondage to sin, alienated from the life of God and under his wrath. People who are in a desperate need 
of the word, of a word from God. That's what they need the most. That's what they're hungering for the most. And then to give them hope. So even though I will not get to this verse today, that is why we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We make our appeal to sinful humanity as if God himself was making an appeal through us. Look down at verse number 20 real quick. 1 Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You see that, you see that the weight of, of someone else's lostness is on the soul of, of, the, of the believer. They're taking the responsibility. Of course, we can't save anybody but to bring the message to, to our neighbors, to our, our families, to our people that we meet around us. We're, we're, we're always thinking about that. So see, the love of Christ moves believers to a place where they learn to be dead to themselves, and then also they're dead to prejudices. Do you realize that this would destroy modern-day politics, they would not be able to use the race card to keep things stirred up. The Bible is actually teaching us that this wipes out all obstacles so that we will go as Christ's ambassadors to all kinds of people, all classes of people, with the gospel, and that will never be an obstacle or a hindrance to us. It's all broken down. So for a believer to keep alive prejudices is completely sinful. God does not see us as what culture we come from or what class we come from or what skin color we have. He sees us in Christ as his children in his family, as adopted, as covered by the blood of Christ, as his own dear possessions. That's how God sees us. And so we ought to, as believers, be willing to be brought into this realm in which we no longer have prejudices about people. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what, what sin you sinned. It doesn't matter what class you have, how much money you have, what skin color you have, what culture you came from. It doesn't matter. I want to bring to you the gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to save your soul and bring you into my family. That's what I want. That's what motivates me. And that's the love of Christ that flows through the believer as an ambassador, that they are concerned for all kinds of people. doesn't matter who they are, how they look, how they dress. That's how God wants us to see people. If, if we don't, we won't go to certain people. We'll have this weird view of people that will we'll stop us from talking to them. I can't talk to them. Look at how they're dressed. Look at that thing that got on their head. See, we, we, it, God says, no, that must be removed. If you're going to be an ambassador, it has to be removed. Don't forget, we're in a foreign culture. We're talking to people that are not from our family. So we have to have the right character, the right disposition to take it. And if we don't have love for people, we'll never tell anybody about the gospel. 
especially people who are really different than us. There's a third thing, place that the, the Word of God takes believers, the, the love of Christ moves believers to this, this third place, and it's found in verse 16. The love of Christ moves believers to a new sphere where they no longer look at Christ in a fleshly way. Look what it says in verse 16, the middle of the verse, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Now, many know Christ according to the flesh in the sense that he was a great man, a religious leader, a teacher, a prophet, an angel, a carpenter. Some simply are ignorant of him and ignore him. Some are filled with foolish, pernicious, vicious thoughts about him. And if you just think about the Apostle Paul, he was a proud Pharisee who had been mad in his efforts to stamp out the name of Christ. He hated Christ. He hated those who believed in Christ. He thought of Christ as a false messiah. But when he was overcome by the love of the one in whom he once hated, he no longer viewed Christ in a fleshly way. Now Christ was the object of his love and service. Christ's love enveloped and consumed him. Christ was the motive for Paul staying alive and enduring hardships and troubles. So in Christ, when we are in Christ, the object of our love is Christ himself and the motive of our service for him is our love for him because we understand what he has done for us. And not only that, this last area of which I'll not elaborate on this morning is found in verse number 17 probably the most famous passage in this passage. The love of Christ moves the believers to a new sphere where everything is new. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a very important phrase I'll look at next time, he is a new creature. The old things pass away, behold, new things have come. So, the love of Christ moves believers into the area where they die to self. They die to pre prejudices. They die to all false views of Christ and, and, and his work. And they die to the old Adamic nature that they always once lived by. And I'll look at that next time. So yes, Believers in Christ, Jesus, you are ambassadors for Christ. So to bring his gospel to a lost and dying world, the best way to do that is to have the best disposition, and from that disposition flows through that person to other people because that disposition will include a constant integrity, a genuine, genuine humility, and a deep thankfulness 
for Christ's love in which we all know that we would never have deserved. That's the first thing, the first mark of an ambassador. Let's pray, and then I'll bring up the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. It, it really does, Lord, cut to the chase and brings to our mind the very important things for us as believers. And I just pray, Lord, as we look at this new year, it would be a year in which, Lord, there would be different things going on in our life because we're submitting to the Spirit of God. We're submitting to the Word of God. We're growing in our knowledge. And, Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to go into the world and be ambassadors for you. So, Lord, allow us to adjust things in our lives so that can be um, a reality. And, Lord, work on our disposition that our integrity, our humility, and our love for you would be very evident in the way we speak, how we respond to people, how we pray, how we worship you, how we give, how we sing. I pray it would all be manifest in our life. For there's no greater gift that we could have ever received on this side of eternity than to know that we've been loved by God. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, this morning we have the Lord's table. And in the Lord's table, I have mentioned in the past, there, are, there really are two agreed upon qualifications for participating in the Lord's table. The first qualification would be only those who have repented and believed in Christ and have participated in baptism should, of course, participate in the Lord's table because it is a sign that they are being, uh, acting out them being a Christian and continuing in the Christian life. That's the first thing. The second qualification for participating in the, Lord, the, uh, the Lord's Supper is self-examination from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, those who eat and drink, it says, without discerning the body. See, the problem at the Corinthian church uh, in the Corinthian church was a failure to see their selfishness and their uh, inconsiderateness and their inconsiderate conduct towards other people. All right, the rich were, were not even having, you know, using their food items to share with everybody. They were being selfish with it. And of course, God uh, had to deal with that, some by making people sick and some by allowing them to die because they misrepresented God. And so they didn't have unity. They actually had disunity because they didn't discern the body of Christ and their relationships. And instead of self-giving sacrifice, uh, they had enmity towards each other and selfishness towards each other. So in other words, we need to make sure that we're examining ourselves uh, and asking ourselves whether our relationships in the body of Christ are in fact reflecting the character of the Lord of our Lord in whom we come to worship. And so when we come to the elements of the 
bread, we see the unleavened bread represents the sinless Messiah and the blood represents the substitute, dying in the place of another in order to cover or cleanse or wipe away their sin. So those are the two qualifications that if you are a believer and you've trusted Christ and you've been baptized and you are examining yourself and you are aware that this is the representation of the gospel, the bread representing the enfleshment and coming uh, of the Lord into the world, and, and the fruit of the vine represents the blood that was shed. That is the core message of the gospel. That's why the Lord left us that. So we would never forget that this is why we're saved. And so don't let this thing we do every month become just mundane or have no meaning to it. It should always have significant meaning to it. And so let's take a few minutes, prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's table, and I'll come back and read the scripture, and then we'll distribute the elements. Word of God tells us while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take it, this is my body. Let's pray for the bread that represents the body of Christ. Father, we again want to humbly come before you with a thankful heart for taking care of something we could have never taken care of, and that's uh, our own sin. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world as a sinless man, and you became the perfect, holy, unblemished sacrifice that would go to the cross and be our substitute. And so, Lord, we, we come and are reminded this morning that this bread represents your body. And I pray, Lord, that we'd always um, consider the implication of the truth of the gospel in a very serious way, and yet lay a, a way in which we are rejoicing, too. And, um, and we praise you and thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here and partake of this ordinance. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.